Chapter Six of Historical Mysteries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Louise J. Bell. Historical Mysteries by Andrew Lang. Chapter Six The Mystery of Kaspar Hauser, the Child of Europe. The story of Kaspar Hauser, a boy, apparently idiotic, who appeared as if from the clouds in Nuremberg, 1828, divided Germany into hostile parties, and caused legal proceedings as late as 1883. Whence this lad came, and what his previous adventures had been, has never been ascertained. His death by a dagger wound in 1833 whether inflicted by his own hand or that of another, deepened the mystery. According to one view, the boy was only a waif and an impostor who had strayed from some peasant home where nobody desired his return. According to the other theory, he was the crown prince of Baden, stolen as an infant in the interests of a junior branch of the house, reduced to imbecility by systematic ill-treatment, turned loose on the world at the age of sixteen, and finally murdered, lest his secret origin might be discovered. I state first the theory of the second party in the dispute, which believed that Caspar was some great one. I employ language as romantic as my vocabulary affords. Darkness in Karlsruhe. Tis the high noon of night, October 15, 1812. Hark to the tread of the twelve hours as they pass on the palace clock, and join their comrades that have been. The vast corridors are still. In the shadows lurk two burly minions of ambitious crime, Burkhardt and Sauerbeck. Is that a white, moving shadow which approaches through the gloom? There arises a shriek, a heavy body falls, "'Tis a lackey who has seen and recognized "'the white lady of the Grand Ducal House "'that walks before the deaths of princes. "'Burkhardt and Sauerbeck spurn the inanimate body "'of the menial witness. "'The white figure, bearing in her arms a sleeping child, "'glides to the tapestried wall and vanishes through it "'into the chamber of the Crown Prince, "'a babe of fourteen days. "'She returns,' Carrying another unconscious infant form, she places it in the hands of the ruffian Sauerbeck. She disappears. The miscreant speeds with the child through a postern into the park. You hear the trample of four horses and the roll of the carriage on the road. Next day there is silence in the palace, broken but by the shrieks of a bereaved, though royal, or at least grand-ducal, mother. Her babe lies a corpse. The crown prince has died in the night. The path to the throne lies open to the offspring of the Countess von Hochberg, morganatic wife of the reigning prince, Karl Friedrich, and the mother of the children of Ludwig Wilhelm August, his youngest son. Sixteen years fleet by, years rich in royal crimes. "'Tis four of a golden whit Monday afternoon in Old Nuremberg, May 26, 1828. "'The town lies empty, 
dusty, silent. Her merry people are rejoicing in the green wood and among the suburban beer gardens. One man alone, a shoemaker, stands by the door of his house in the Unschlitt Place. Around him lie the vacant streets of the sleeping city. His eyes rest on the form, risen, as it were, out of the earth or fallen from the skies, of a boy, strangely clad, speechless, incapable either of standing erect or of moving his limbs. That boy is the royal infant placed of yore by the white shadow in the hands of the cloaked ruffian. Thus does the crown prince of Baden return from the darkness to the daylight. He names himself Kaspar Hauser. He is to die by the dagger of a cruel courtier or of a hireling English earl. Thus briefly, and I trust impressively, have I sketched the history of Kaspar Hauser, the child of Europe, as it was presented by various foreign pamphleteers, and, in 1892, by Miss Elizabeth E. Evans. But, as for the authentic records on which the partisans of Kaspar Hauser based their version, they are anonymous, unauthenticated, discredited by the results of a libel action in 1883, and, in short, are worthless and impudent rubbish. On all sides, indeed, the evidence as to Kaspar Hauser is in bewildering confusion. In 1832, four years after his appearance, a book about him was published by Paul John Anselm von Feuerbach. The man was mortal, had been a professor, and, though a legal reformer and a learned jurist, was a nervous invalid when he wrote, and he soon after died of paralysis, or poison, according to Kasparites. He was approaching a period of life in which British judges write books to prove that Bacon was Shakespeare, and his arguments were like theirs. His Kaspar Hauser is composed in a violently injudicial style. To seek the giant perpetrator of such a crime, as the injustice to Kaspar, it would be necessary to be in possession of Joshua's ram's horns, or at least of Oberon's horn, in order, for some time at least, to suspend the activity of the powerful enchanted colossi that guard the golden gates of certain castles that is, of the palace at Karlsruhe. Such early Nuremberg records of Kaspar's first exploits as existed were ignored by Feuerbach, who told Lord Stanhope that any reader of these would conceive Kaspar to be an impostor. They ought to be burned. The records, which were read and in part published by the young Meyer, son of one of Kaspar's tutors, and by President Karl Schmaus, have disappeared. And, in 1883, Schmaus could only attest the general accuracy of Meyer's excerpts from the town's manuscripts. Taking Feuerbach's romantic narrative of 1832, we find him averring that about 4.30 p.m. on Whit Monday, May 26, 1828, a citizen, unnamed, was loitering at his door in the Unschlitt Place, Nuremberg, intending to sally out by the new gate, when he saw a young peasant 
standing in an attitude suggestive of intoxication and apparently suffering from locomotor ataxia unable to govern fully the movements of his legs the citizen went to the boy who showed him a letter directed to the captain of a cavalry regiment the gallant captain lived near the newgate six hundred fifty four paces from the citizen's house and thither the young peasant walked with the citizen so he could govern fully the movements of his legs at the house the captain being out the boy said i would be a horseman as my father was also don't know later he was taken to the prison up a steep hill and the ascent to his room was one of over ninety steps thus he could certainly walk and when he spoke of himself he said i like other people later he took to speaking of himself as caspar in the manner of small children and some hysterical patients under hypnotism but this was an afterthought for caspar's line came to be that he had only learned a few words like a parrot words which he used to express all senses indifferently his eyesight when he first appeared seems to have been normal at the prison he wrote his own name as caspar hauser and covered a sheet of paper with writing later he could see best in the dark so says feuerbach in eighteen thirty two what he does not say is whence he got his information as to caspar's earliest exploits now our earliest evidence on oath before a magistrate is dated november fourth eighteen twenty nine george weichmann shoemaker feuerbach's anonymous citizen then swore that on may twenty sixth eighteen twenty eight he saw caspar not making paralyzed efforts to walk but trudging down a hilly street shouting hi or any loud cry and presently asking with tolerable distinctness newgate street he took the boy that way and the boy gave him the letter for the captain Weichmann said that they had better ask for him at the Newgate guardhouse, and the boy said, Guardhouse? Guardhouse? Newgate no doubt just built? He said he came from Ratisbon and was in Nuremberg for the first time, but clearly did not understand what Weichmann meant when he inquired as to the chances of war breaking out. In May 1834, Weichmann repeated his evidence as to Kaspar's power of talking and walking, and was corroborated by one Jacob Beck, not heard of in 1829. On December 20, 1829, Merck, the captain's servant, spoke to Kaspar's fatigue. He reeled as he walked, and would answer no questions. In 1834, Merck expanded and said, we had a long chat. Caspar averred that he could read and write, and had crossed the frontier daily on his way to school. He did not know where he came from. Certainly, Merck, in 1834, remembered much more than in 1829. Whether he suppressed facts in 1829, or in 1834 invented fables, we do not know. 
the cavalry captain november second eighteen twenty nine remembered several intelligent remarks made by caspar his dress was new and clean denied by feuerbach he was tired and footsore the evidence of the police taken in eighteen thirty four was remote in time but went to prove that caspar's eyesight and power of writing were normal feuerbach absolutely discredits all the sworn evidence of eighteen twenty nine without giving his own sources the early evidence shows that caspar could both walk and talk and see normally by artificial and natural light all of which is absolutely inconsistent with caspar's later account of himself the personal property of caspar was a horn rosary and several catholic tracts with prayers to the guardian angel and so forth feuerbach holds that these were furnished by devout villains a very sound protestant was feuerbach and that caspar was ignorant of the being of a deity at least of a protestant deity the letter carried by the boy said that the writer first took charge of him as an infant in eighteen twelve and had never let him take a single step out of my house i have already taught him to read and write and he writes my handwriting exactly as i do in the same hand was a letter in latin characters purporting to come from caspar's mother a poor girl as the author of the german letter was a poor day laborer humbug as i take caspar to have been i am not sure that he wrote these pieces if not somebody else was in the affair somebody who wanted to get rid of caspar as that youth was a useless false convulsionary and hysterical patient no one was likely to want to keep him if he could do better no specified reward was offered at the time for information about caspar no portrait of him was then published and circulated the burgomaster binder had a portrait and a facsimile of caspar's signature engraved but feuerbach would not allow them to be circulated heaven knows why how caspar fell as it were from the clouds and unseen into the middle of nuremberg even on a holiday when almost everyone was out of town is certainly a puzzle the earliest witnesses took him for a journeyman tailor lad he was about sixteen and perhaps nobody paid any attention to a dusty travelling tradesman or groom out of place feuerbach who did not see caspar till july says that his feet were covered with blisters the jailer says that they were merely swollen by the tightness of his boots once in prison caspar who asked to be taken home adopted the role of a semi-unconscious animal playing with toy horses blind though he saw yet not long after he wrote a minute account of all that he had then observed he could only eat bread and water meat made him shudder and lord stanhope says that this peculiarity did occur in the cases of some peasant soldiers he had no sense of hearing which means perhaps that he did not think of pretending to be amazed by the sound of church bells till he had been in prison for some days till then 
he had been deaf to their noise. This is Feuerbach's story, but we shall see that it is contradicted by Kaspar himself, in writing. Thus the alleged facts may be explained without recourse even to a theory of intermittent deafness. Kaspar was no more deaf than blind. He was all there, and though ten days after his arrival he denied that he had ever seen Weichmann, in ten days more his memory for faces was deemed extraordinary, and he minutely described all that on May 26 and later he had observed. Kaspar was taught to write by the jailer's little boy, though he could write when he came, in the same hand as the author of his mysterious letter. Though he had but half a dozen words on May 26, according to Feuerbach, by July 7 he had furnished Binder with his history. Pretty quick work! Later, in 1828, he was able to write that history himself. In 1829, he completed a work of autobiography. Kaspar wrote that till the age of 16 he was kept in a prison, perhaps six or seven feet long, four broad and five high. There were two small windows with closed black wooden shutters. He lay on straw, lived on bread and water, and played with toy horses and blue and red ribbons. That he could see colors in total darkness is a proof of his inconsistent fables, or of his hyperesthesia, abnormal acuteness of the senses. The man who kept him was not less hyperesthetic, for he taught Kaspar to write in the dark. He never heard any noise, but avers that in prison he was alarmed by the town clock striking on the first morning though Feuerbach says that he did not hear the bells for several days. Such is Kaspar's written account, 1829. The published account of July 1828, derived from the expressions of a half-dumb animal, as Feuerbach puts it, is much more prolix and minute in detail. The animal said that he had sat on the ground and never seen daylight, till he came to Nuremberg. He used to be hocused with water of an evil taste and wake in a clean shirt. The man once hit him and hurt him for making too much noise. The man taught him his letters and the Arabic numerals. Later, he gave him instructions in the art of standing. Next, he took him out and taught him about nine words. He was made by the man to walk he knew not how far or how long, the man leading him. Nobody saw this extraordinary pair on the march. Feuerbach, who maintains that Kaspar's feet were covered with cruel blisters from walking, also supposes that, perhaps for the greater part of the way, he was carried in a carriage or wagon. Whence, then, the cruel blisters caused by walking? There is medical evidence that his legs were distorted by confinement, but the medical post-mortem evidence says that this was not the case. He told Binder that his windows were shuttered. He told Hiltel, the jailer, that from his windows he saw a pile of wood and above it the top of a tree. 
obviously caspar's legends about himself whether spoken in june eighteen twenty eight or written in february eighteen twenty nine are absurdly false he was for three weeks in the tower and was daily visited by the curious yet in these three weeks the half-conscious animal learned to read tolerably well to count to write figures that he could do when he arrived feuerbach says he made progress in writing a good hand and learned a simple tune on the harpsichord pretty well for a half unconscious animal in july eighteen twenty eight after being adopted by the excited town of nuremberg he was sent to be educated by and live with a schoolmaster named daumer and was studied by feuerbach they found in caspar a splendid example of the sensitive and a noble proof of the powers of animal magnetism in germany at this time much was talked and written about somnambulism the hypnotic state and about a kind of animal magnetism which in accordance with mesmer's theory was supposed to pass between stars metals magnets and human beings the effects produced on the patient by the hypnotist now ascribed to suggestion were attributed to a magnetic efflux and reichenbach's subjects saw strange currents flowing from metals and magnets his experiments have never perhaps been successfully repeated though hysterical persons have pretended to feel the traditional effects even when non-magnetic objects were pointed at them now caspar was really a sensitive or feigned to be one with hysterical cunning anything unusual would throw him into convulsions or reduce him to unconsciousness he was addicted to the tears of sensibility years later meyer read to him an account of the noachian deluge and he wept bitterly meyer thought this rather too much the deluge being so remote an event and after that though meyer read pathetic things in his best manner caspar remained unmoved he wrote a long account of his remarkable magnetic sensations during and before the first thunderstorm after his arrival at nuremberg yet before his appearance there he must have heard plenty of thunderstorms though he pretended that this was his first the sight of the moon produced in him emotions of horror he had visions like the reverend ansel bourne later to be described of a beautiful male figure in a white garment who gave him a garland he was taken to a somnambulist and felt magnetic pulls and pushes and a strong current of air indeed the tutor daumer shared these sensations obviously by virtue of suggestion they are out of fashion the doctrine of animal magnetism being as good as exploded and nobody feels pushed or pulled or blown upon when he consults mrs piper or any other medium from a letter of feuerbach of september twenty eighteen twenty eight we learn that caspar without being an albino 
can see as well in utter darkness as in daylight perhaps the man who taught caspar to write in the dark was an albino caspar never saw his face caspar's powers of vision abated as he took to beef but he remained hyperesthetic and could see better in a bad light than daumer or feuerbach some dowsers we know can detect subterranean water by the sensations of their hands without using a twig or divining rod and others can spot gold hidden under the carpet with the twig caspar merely with the bare hand detected without touching it a needle under a tablecloth he gradually lost these gifts and the theory seems to have been that they were the result of his imprisonment in the dark and a proof of it the one thing certain is that caspar had the sensitive or mediumistic temperament which usually though not always is accompanied by hysteria while hysteria means cunning and fraud whether conscious or not so conscious meanwhile the boy was in the hands of men credulous curious and in the case of daumer capable of odd sensations induced by suggestion from such a boy in such company the truth could not be expected above all if like some other persons of his class he was subject to dissociation and obliviousness as to his own past rather curiously we find in feuerbach's own published collection of trials the case of a boy sorgel who had paroxysms of second consciousness of which he was ignorant upon returning to his ordinary state of consciousness we also have the famous case of the atheistic carpenter ansel born who was struck deaf dumb and blind and miraculously healed in a dissenting chapel to the great comfort of a large and warm congregation mr bourne then became a preacher but later forgot who he was strolled to a distant part of the states called himself brown set up a notions store and one day awoke among his notions to the consciousness that he was born not brown a preacher not a dealer in cheap futilities born was examined under hypnotism by professor william james and others many such instances of ambulatory automatism are given in my view caspar was to put it mildly an ambulatory automatist who had strayed away like the rev mr born from some place where nobody desired his return rather his lifelong absence was an object of hope the longer caspar lived the more frequently was he detected in every sort of imposture that could make him notorious or enable him to shirk work caspar had for months been the pet mystery of nuremberg people were sure that like the mysterious prisoner of pignerol les exils and the ile sainte marguerite sixteen sixty nine to seventeen o three caspar was some great one kept out of his own now the prisoner of pignerol was really a valet and caspar was a peasant 
some thought him a son of napoleon others averred as we saw that he was the infant son of the grand duke karl of baden born in eighteen twelve who had not died within a fortnight of his birth but been spirited away by a lady disguised as the spectral white lady of baden an aristocratic banshee the subtle conspirators had bred the grand duke caspar in a dark den the theory ran hoping that he would prove by virtue of such education an acceptable recruit for the bavarian cavalry and that no questions would be asked unluckily questions were now being asked for a boy who could only occasionally see and hear was not though he could smell a cemetery at a distance of five hundred yards a useful man on a patrol at least the military authorities thought not had they known that caspar could see in the dark they might have kept him as a guide in night attacks but they did not know the promising young hussar he rode well but clumsily was thus left in the hands of civilians the grand ducal secret might be discovered so an assassin was sent to take off the young prince the wonder was not unnaturally expressed that caspar had not smelled out the villain especially as he was probably the educational albino who taught him to write in the dark on hearing of this later caspar told lord stanhope that he had smelled the man however he did not mention this at the time to make a long story short on october seventeenth eighteen twenty nine caspar did not come to midday eating but was found weltering in his gore in the cellar of dalmer's house being offered refreshment in a cup he bit out a piece of the porcelain and swallowed it he had an inconsiderable wound on the forehead to that extent the assassin had effected his purpose feuerbach thinks that the murderer had made a shot at caspar's throat with a razor that caspar ducked cleverly and got it on the brow and that the assassin believed his crime to be consummated and fled after uttering words in which caspar recognized the voice of his tutor the possible albino no albino or other suspicious character was observed herr daumer before this cruel outrage had remarked in caspar a highly regrettable tendency to dissimulation and untruthfulness and just before the attack had told the pupil that he was a humbug lord stanhope quoted a paper of daumer's in the universal gazette of february sixth eighteen thirty four Allemeine Zeitung, in which he says that lying and deceit were become to Caspar a second nature. When did they begin to become a second nature? In any case, Daumer clove to the romantic theory of Caspar's origin. Caspar left Daumer's house and stayed with various good people, being accompanied by a policeman in his walks he was sent to school and feuerbach bitterly complains that he was compelled to study the latin grammar and finally even caesar's commentaries like other boys 
caspar protested that he did not see the use of latin and indeed many of our modern authors too obviously share caspar's indifference to the dead languages he laughed in eighteen thirty one says feuerbach at the popish superstition of his early attendants we only hear of one and about his theological predilections we learn nothing and he also laughed at ghosts in his new homes caspar lied terribly was angry when detected and wounded himself he said accidentally with a pistol after being reproached for shirking the commentaries of julius caesar and for mendacity he was very vain very agreeable as long as no one found fault with him very lazy and very sentimental in may eighteen thirty one lord stanhope who since the attack on caspar in eighteen twenty nine had been curious about him came to nuremberg and took up the hero with fantastic fondness though he recognized caspar's mythopoeic tendencies he believed him to be the victim of some nefarious criminals and offered a reward of five hundred florins anonymously for information it was never claimed already had arisen a new theory that caspar was the son of a hungarian magnate later lord stanhope averred on oath that inquiries made in hungary proved caspar to be an impostor in eighteen thirty a man named muller who had been a protestant preacher and was now a catholic priest denounced a preacher named worth and a miss dalbon a governess as kidnappers of caspar from the family of a countess living near pest muller was exposed his motives were revealed and the newspapers told the story caspar was therefore tried with hungarian words and seemed to recognize some especially pushonbya pressburg he thought that someone had said that his father was at pressburg and thither lord stanhope sent him with lieutenant hickel this was in eighteen thirty one but caspar recognized nothing his companions however found that he pretended to be asleep in the carriage to hear what was said about him they ceased to speak of him and caspar ceased to slumber a later expedition into hungary by hickel in february eighteen thirty two on the strength of more hungarian excitement on caspar's part discovered that there was nothing to discover and shook the credulity of lord stanhope he could not believe caspar's narrative but still hoped that he had been terrorized into falsehood he could not believe both that the albino had never spoken to caspar in his prison and also that the man always taught me to do what i was told to lord stanhope caspar averred that the man with whom he had always lived said nothing to him till he was on his journey yet during his imprisonment the man had taught him he declared the phrases which by his account were all the words that he knew when he arrived at nuremberg for these and other obvious reasons lord stanhope though he had relieved nuremberg of caspar november eighteen thirty one 
and made ample provision for him, was deeply skeptical about his narrative. The town of Nuremberg had already tried to shift the load of Kaspar onto the shoulders of the Bavarian government. Lord Stanhope did not adopt him, but undertook to pay for his maintenance, and left him, in January 1832, under the charge of a Dr. Meyer at Ansbach. He had a curator and a guardian, and escaped from the commentaries of Julius Caesar into the genial society of Feuerbach. That jurist died in May 1833. Poisoned, say the Kasparites. A new guardian was appointed, and Kaspar lived with Dr. Meyer. Finding him incurably untruthful, the doctor ceased to provoke him by comments on his inaccuracies, and Kaspar got a small clerkly place. With this he was much dissatisfied, for he, like Feuerbach, had expected Lord Stanhope to take him to England. Feuerbach, in the dedication to Lord Stanhope of his book, 1832, writes, Beyond the sea in fair old England, you have prepared for him a secure retreat, until the rising sun of truth shall have dispersed the darkness which still hangs over his mysterious fate. If Lord Stanhope ever made this promise, his growing skepticism about Caspar prevented him from fulfilling it. On December 9, 1833, Meyer was much provoked by Caspar's inveterate falseness, and said that he did not know how to face Lord Stanhope, who was expected to visit Ansbach at Christmas. For some weeks, Caspar had been sulky, and there had been questions about a journal which he was supposed to keep, but would not show. He was now especially resentful. On two earlier occasions, after a scene with his tutor, Caspar had been injured, once by the assassin who cut his forehead, once by a pistol accident. On December 14, he rushed into Dr. Meyer's room, pointed to his side, and led Meyer to a place distant about 500 yards from his house. So agitated was he that Meyer would go no further, especially as Caspar would answer no questions. On their return, Caspar said, went court garden, man, had a knife, gave a bag, struck, I ran as I could, bag must lie there. Caspar was found to have a narrow wound, two inches and a half under the center of the left breast, clearly caused by a very sharp double-edged weapon. In three or four days, he died. The heart had been injured. He was able to depose, but not on oath, that on the morning of the 14th, a man in a blouse, who had addressed him some days earlier, brought him a verbal message from the court gardener, asking him to come and view some clay from a newly bored well, where, in fact, no work was being done at this time. He found no one at the well, and went to the monument of the rather forgotten poet Uz. Here, a man came forward, gave him a bag, stabbed him, and fled. Of the man, he gave discrepant descriptions. He became incoherent, 
and died. There was snow lying when Caspar was stabbed, but there were no footmarks near the well, and elsewhere only one man's track was in the Hofgarten. Was that track Caspar's? We are not told. No knife was found. Caspar was left-handed, and Dr. Horlocker declared that the blow must have been dealt by a left-handed man. Lord Stanhope suggested that Caspar himself had inflicted the wound by pressure, and that, after he had squeezed the point of the knife through his wadded coat, it had penetrated much deeper than he had intended. A very probable hypothesis. As for the bag which the assassin gave him, it was found, and Dr. Meyer said that it was very like a bag which he had seen in Caspar's possession. It contained a note, folded, said Madame Meyer, as Caspar folded his own notes. The writing was in pencil, in Spiegelschrift, that is, it had to be read in a mirror. Caspar, on his deathbed, kept muttering incoherences about what is written with lead no one can read. The note contained vague phrases about coming from the Bavarian frontier. After Caspar's death, the question of murder or suicide agitated Germany and gave birth to a long succession of pamphlets. A wild woman, Countess Albersdorf, nay Lady Graham, says Miss Evans, who later calls her Lady Caroline Albersdorf, saw visions, dreamed dreams, and published nonsense. Other pamphlets came out, directed against the House of Baden. In 1870, an anonymous French pamphleteer offered the Baden romance as from the papers of a Major von Hennenhofer, the villain-in-chief of the White Lady plot. Lord Stanhope was named as the ringleader in the attacks on Kaspar, both at Nuremberg and Anspach. In 1883, all the fables were revived in a pamphlet produced at Ratisbon, a mere hash of the libels of 1834, 1839, 1840, and 1870. Dr. Meyer was especially attacked. His sons defended his reputation by an action for libel on the dead, an action which German law permits. There was no defense, and the publisher was fined and ordered to destroy all the copies. In 1892, the libels were repeated by Baron Alexander von Arten. Two documents of a palpably fraudulent character were added. The rest was the old stuff. The reader may find it in Miss Evans's Kaspar Hauser, 1892. For example, Daumer knew a great deal. He even, in 1833, received an anonymous letter from Anspach, containing the following statement. Lord Daniel Alban Dertiel, advocate of the royal court in London, said to me, I am firmly convinced that Kaspar Hauser was murdered. It was all done by bribery. Stanhope has no money and lives by this affair. Daumer and Miss Evans appear to have seen nothing odd in relying on an anonymous letter about Lord Daniel Alban Dertiel. 
lord stanhope says miss evans was known to have subsisted principally upon the sale of his german hymn-book and other devotional works for which he was a coal-porter weary of piety lord stanhope became a hired assassin perhaps this nonsense still has its believers seduced by lady caroline albersdorf nay lady graham by lord daniel alban dertiel and by the spirit of caspar himself who summoned by daniel dunglas home at a seance with the empress eugenie apparently announced himself as prince of baden no authority for this interesting ghost of one who disbelieved in ghosts is given it is quite possible that caspar hauser no more knew who he was than the valet of sixteen sixty nine to seventeen o three knew why he was a prisoner no more than mr brown when a dealer in notions knew that he was mr bourne a dissenting preacher nothing is certain except that caspar was a hysterical humbug whom people of sense suspected from the first and whom believers in animal magnetism and homeopathy accepted as some great one educated by his royal enemies in total darkness to fit him for the military profession it is difficult of course to account for the impossibility of finding whence caspar had come to nuremberg but in eighteen eighty seven it proved just as impossible to discover whither the rev ansel bourne had gone mr bourne's lot was cast not in the sleepy royalist bavaria of eighteen twenty eight but in the midst of the admired hustle of the great western republic he was one of the most remarkable men in the country not a yokel of sixteen he was last seen at his nephew's store one twenty one broad street providence rhode island on january seventeen on january twenty the hue and cry arose in the able and energetic press of his state mr bourne as a travelling evangelist was widely known but after a fortnight unaccounted for he arrived as a j brown at norristown pennsylvania sold notions there and held forth with acceptance at religious meetings on march fourteenth he awoke still undiscovered and wondered where he was he remembered nothing since january seventeen so he wired to providence rhode island for information he had a whole fortnight to account for between his departure from providence rhode island and his arrival at norristown pennsylvania nobody could help him he had apparently walked invisible like caspar on his way to nuremberg he was hypnotized by professor william james and brought into his brown condition but could give practically no verifiable account of brown's behavior in that missing fortnight he said that he went from providence to pawtucket and was for some days at philadelphia pennsylvania where he really seems to have been as to the rest back of that it was mixed up we do not hear that caspar was ever hypnotized and questioned but probably he also would have been mixed up 
like Mr. Bourne. The fable about a prince of Baden had not a single shred of evidence in its favor. It is true that the Grand Duchess was too ill to be permitted to see her dead baby in 1812, but the baby's father, grandmother, and aunt, with the ten court physicians, the nurses, and others, must have seen it in death, and it is too absurd to suppose on no authority that they were all parties to the white lady's plot. We might as well believe, as Miss Evans seems to do, on the authority of an unnamed Paris newspaper, that a Latin letter, complaining of imprisonment, was picked up in the Rhine, signed S. Howes Sprousio, that the words ought to be read Harris Sprauka, and that they are an anagram of Caspar Hauser. This occurred in 1816, when Caspar, being about four years of age, could not write Latin. No one in the secret could have hoped that the royal infant and captive would be recognized under the name of Sproutio or even of Sprauka. Abject credulity, love of mystery, love of scandal, and political passions produced the ludicrous mass of fables to which, as late as 1893, the Duchess of Cleveland thought it advisable to reply. In England, it is quite safe to accuse a dead man of murder, or of what you please, as far as the Duchess understood the law of libel. So she had no legal remedy. End of chapter 6 Recording by Louise J. Bell Sebastopol, California